Um, so we are in uh, Mark chapter 12. Um, this life that we're living right now, it's one day going to come to an end. <laughs> Welcome to Riverview. <laughs> this life that we're living, one day it's going to come to an end. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. This current life, the things that you see, the cars that you drive, the families that we have, the trees around us, the life that you live, the life that we're living under, the world as you know it right now, one day it's going to come to an end. Now, the truth is, I don't know when that is, and you don't know what that is, but we know with 100% accuracy that everything that lives will die. Everything, barring Jesus comes back, of course, but we know that there is going to be an end one day. And I believe that what we believe happens after we take our last breath, it matters. There will be a day when there's no breath left in your lungs. That's hard to think about, isn't it? But that day will eventually come. The passage that we're looking at this morning, it gives us this, this view of the brevity of our lives, how we are here for a minute and then we are gone. <laughs> That's how fast it is. But before we dive in, what I want to do is I want to ask you to think about this. What do you think happens after you take your last breath? For you personally, what do you think happens after you take your last breath? What do you believe happens about life and death? What's next? And I'm asking you this because I believe with all of my heart that what you believe about death is going to impact and dictate how you live now. What you believe about eternity, what you believe about what happens after this life is over, it's going to impact how you live right now. People over the centuries, people over the years, they have been fascinated about concepts of death and the afterlife. And all you have to do is look back through the pages of history and you see that every culture and every civilization has had their ideas and opinions on what death after life looks like or life after death looks like. In every culture, and every civilization, they've had their ideas. And one of the fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves when we start talking about death is, is this world all that there is? When our breath is done, is there anything after this? Or is this world as we know it, is this, is this the end game? Are we here for just a few minutes and then poof, and then, then we're gone? Or is there something more? I think when we look back through the pages of history, we see uh, a few ideas, a few popular ideas that have surfaced uh, about life and death in the afterlife. One of those first ideas is when you die, you just die. That's it. There, there's, there's nothing left. And so I should try to live it up while I'm, while I'm here. I should try to squeeze everything that I, I can into this life now. I don't want to leave any stone unturned. I don't want to leave any unventure uh, unlived. I don't want to miss one experience. I don't want to miss one party. I don't want to miss one one-night stand. I don't want to miss all that this world has to offer. After all, YOLO, right? You only live once. So if you're going to be here once, pack it all in. I heard Pastor J.D. Greer give a talk, uh, and he, he mentioned this idea of YOLO, this idea that you only live once, so you should just pack it all in. And, and he said, YOLO is just foolishness. It's, it's, it's not for the wise. There's no wisdom in this. When you look at the scriptures, you don't see it anywhere. He actually said there's another concept. It's not YOLO. It's actually YALF. YALF. You actually live forever. And so how you live now, it, it matters. And so you might want to reconsider the track that your life is on. 
You might want to look down the road a little bit and to see how this thing is playing out. Another popular opinion, uh, it's not just if you're here, uh, you die, and that's the end of the world. There's another popular view that's been, um, that's been circulating for, for centuries, and it's still in modern mysticism today. Uh, it's the idea of reincarnation, right? So, so there, this is uh, another, there is another life after this one, but you're in this perpetual cycle of trying to, to live better now so that when the next life comes around, you can have a better existence in that and it won't be maybe as bad as what you're living right now. The whole idea is if you live well now in this life, you're going to do pretty well in the next life. But if you're a crusty old man, if you're a mean old cantankerous woman, if you're a teenager who won't stop fighting with everybody around you, then you might come back as a bug. And then you have to start from the ground up. And that dog that's in your house, that's just faithful to you, and is always there wagging his tail when you show up, he just might be his, your master the next time you come around. Because he's been a good dog. He's not going to stay a dog for very long. It's the idea of reincarnation. There is no end to that cycle. Another idea that's popular about death and, and life is when you die, you're just going to join up with everybody in heaven. It's going to be a great gathering. And so in this idea, there, there's only heaven. Only heaven. There is no hell that comes along with, with, with heaven. There's no consequence for rejecting Jesus. He, he doesn't, uh, he's not the, the, the way, the truth, and the life, as Scripture tells us. He becomes just one way amidst all kinds of other ways in order to get to heaven. And so if we just hold on for a little while, we're all going to get there eventually. And so at the end of this life, we're all just going to kind of meet up at the pearly gates and high-five each other as, as we're on our way in. However, it doesn't seem to be consistent with what Scripture teaches us. It's just not what we see uh, when we open up the Word. And so here's, if we take a step back into the ancient world, how many of those um, that, that lived in civil, civilizations beyond ours have understood uh, life and death. When you think about the Egyptians, do you guys, you guys remember Israel in Egypt? When you read Genesis and you read Exodus, remember how God pulled Israel out of Egypt? In the book of Exodus, we find out that Israel, they've been oppressed by the Egyptians. Uh, and now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember that when we're reading our Bibles, we're not just reading um, a book, okay? You're reading uh, a historical event that's happened on the timeline of history. It's not like when we read the Bible that the events of the Bible are kind of over here and history is happening over here. Those are happening at the same... Like the Bible is recording history for us and how, how God redeems his people through all of life. And so when we read, we have to read and we have to understand the Bible is happening on the whole context and the whole timeline of history. And so when we read Exodus... We read that God is pulling Israel out of the civilization of Egypt, who have dominated them for over 400 years, right? For 400 years, they've been slaves in, in Egypt. And with a mighty act of God's power over and over and over again, he pulls them out of Egypt. And when they leave, like the Egyptians give them all kinds of gold, gives them all kinds of silver. They leave with all kinds of, of wealth when they're heading out. But because they've been slaves for over 400 years, it's not just gold and silver that they're leaving Egypt with. They're also leaving there with 400 years of Egyptian cultural experience and influence on their lives. That doesn't just go away. 
If you want to put it in reference and context for how we live right now, we're in the United States of America, and if you've been here since your birth, you understand that this world or that this culture, this civilization of America, we've been here for less than 250 years. And think about the radical changes that have happened over 250 years of our civilization, right? There's been all kinds of cultural adaptations that have happened in this short amount of time. So 400 years of living in Egypt and the cultural imprint that they were leaving on their lives. And so when it comes to death and the afterlife, here's, here's what was going on. The Egyptians believed that after death, a person's soul was going to travel to the underworld and they were going to be judged by a panel of gods. And your heart was going to be weighed by the context of its purity. And it would be weighed against the, the weight of a feather. And, and that's how you were going to find out what your life in the underworld was going to, to be like. If your soul was found to be pure, it was going to be allowed to enter something called the field of reeds, which was like this paradise utopia kind of a place where, you, where the dead were able to live for, forever. And so when an Egyptian person died, Here's what happens. If the, uh, the family who loved them, they would bury them. And because they were going to be on this journey to see where they were going to land, they would give them food. Like you see this when you open up the, the con- like you start reading about the pyramids and you start reading about mummies and Egyptians and King Tut and all that kind of stuff. When you start cracking into these things, you, you start to see, I mean, there was food in their death places. There was money and jewels and gold so that they could make it into the next life. And so they would have something for their journey. Um, there were all kinds of effects that are found in, in tombs. If they were wealthy, when they left this world, they took that wealth with them. And I just found out this week that if they were wealthy enough to have servants, listen to this, guys, if they're wealthy enough to have servants, those servants might even be killed so that they can go into the afterlife with them and be a servant for them in the afterlife. That, that's, that's, that's the view. Now, another view, not only were they carrying the Egyptian view into their life, they also were living in a Greek context. And the ancient Greeks, they had this culture um, that they were living in, and they had their views of the afterlife and after death. And what they believed is that after death, there was a person's soul that it would be ferried across a river called Styx. And this river was supposed to be the river that was in between um, this world and it separated this world from the underworld. And it was kind of a marshy kind of a deal. And they would be ferried across this river sticks into the underworld by a boatman called Charon. And Charon would ferry them over into the underworld that was ruled by a god named Hades. Does that sound familiar to you? Hades. Jesus talks about Hades. If that sounds familiar, he told Peter that he was going to build his church. He's going to build his church and not even the gates of Hades. And we've translated that as hell. Now, not even the gates of hell were going to overcome it. Hades became a popular name for hell or the place of death, which was known as Sheol in, in the Old Testament. It was the, the land of, of, of the dead. And so the Greeks, they also believed in the concept of a, play, of a thing called shade. And shade was this, this uh, concept of, of a ghostly version of a person's soul that would linger in the underworld after the physical body began to decay. Uh, the only way that that person wasn't just floating around in the underworld was that they would have a virtuous life while they were here on earth. That's freaky, isn't it? <laughs> floating around in the underworld, it gives you like this uh, night of the living dead or uh, what, what's what's that, that show right now? Um, the Walking Dead, is that what it's called? The Walking Dead, Waking Dead? 
Like gives you that, like there's just things floating around. But if you don't want to float around for all of eternity, then you have to live a virtuous life now. So before Jesus comes around, the Jewish community, they had their own beliefs as well coming out of the scriptures. Uh, what happens when you die? They believe that in the concept that if you die, you're going to go to a place called what we said Sheol. And this was a place where the soul would live after you die. And eventually at the end of time, there would be a resurrection of the dead. And the righteous person, they would be rewarded, and the wicked person then would be punished. But not every Jewish person believed this, actually. There's a group of people called the Sadducees. Um, and there weren't a ton of Sadducees. There's actually a small group of people. But the, the few that were there, they had some pretty significant positions within the religious realm. Uh, some of them were even priests uh, in, in, in the religious realm. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe that when you die, you die, and that's it. They only read and they only listened to um, everything that Moses wrote. And so we're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these five books that we know as, as the Pentateuch. The, the Sadducees, this is all that they read, and they lived their lives according to these five books. And so anything else that you and I would consider Scripture today or that's been handed to us as Scripture, they'd have nothing to do with. And for them, they, they would say, when we read this, we can't find anything about the resurrection in, in, in these words. There's no resurrection from the dead. And so for them, the resurrection was just a bunch of nonsense. You live, and then you die, and that's it. And can I just say, man, if that's the belief that you're carrying, or if there's just some chance that that is actually reality or that could be reality, man, wouldn't that be pretty awful? Just like this is it, and then you're done? It'd be a pretty dreadful life. How awful would that be? This is it? Because this world sometimes, like, like, it's not always great. There's death and there's dying and there's disease and there's disaster. There's things that we dislike. Now, Ashley and I, we were, had some family friends over this weekend, um, and they're fighting to keep their 10-year-old son alive right now. Um, not too long ago, he was... Um, uh, told that he had brain cancer, or they had a tumor, and they found out that uh, it was contagious, not contagious, that it, that it was uh, cancerous, um, and they were going to have to try to figure out what to do with this, and it was like a matter of life and death right then and right now. They had to get him out of Omaha. They, had to, they took him to St. Jude, um, and so he's uh, being cared for there, uh, and so there's this, this, this little bit of hope, but yet at the same time, they're holding their son's life in the balance, and, and he's been on death's doorstep time and time again over the last few weeks. Even just last night, uh, we got a, a text from uh, the mom, and she said, hey, uh, he's not doing well. Could you, could you be praying for him? I said, yeah, of course, we're going we're to be praying for him. Man, if there's no hope of something more, how, how do you live with that? If, if, if the worst-case scenario plays out, how, how do you live in that space that you would never see your son again that, that you would never see your loved one again, um, or you don't know, like, this is it, like, that's the end of the road for him, like, there, there's nothing else that's just, that it's just done. How awful would life be? How could you cope with that? I believe the Bible teaches us that there's so much more than what's here right now, so I want to dig in with here, and so for our benefit, the same thing's happening here that's been happening over the last few weeks. There's people that are coming to Jesus, and they're asking questions, uh, and Jesus is answering that question, and there's a little bit of an application. And so if you want handles for it, that's your handle. There's a question, Jesus answers the question, and then we apply this thing. And so the first question that gets asked um, is coming from the Sadducees. And so 
Uh, now, if you didn't grow up in church, and uh, you, you, you get kind of weirded out, not weirded out, but you get confused about all these groups. You've got Pharisees, you've got Sadducees, you've got chief priests, you've got Herodians, all these different groups that we've been talking about. If you want to remember the Sadducees, anybody remember how you remember that from, from uh, Sunday school? They don't believe in the resurrection, so they are sad, you see, right? So Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection, so they're just sad. Um, just sad, you sees. Uh, look at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And the resurrection... When they rise again, whose, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Aren't you so glad we made it to this passage to teach this week? Um, they're, they're coming up to Jesus, and Jesus is uh, kind of, he's already laid out this two-kingdom idea, right? There, he said there's this kingdom of heaven, and there's this kingdom of the world, uh, when he was talking about Caesar, like, do we pay taxes? And I said, give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to the Lord what's the Lord's. We are operating in these two worlds, that we are citizens of heaven, living that out in the citizenship of the world right now. And so he's painted that picture, but yet ultimately God is over both kingdoms. And this is where the issue comes up for these Sadducees. And so they're saying, you're telling us that there is something beyond what we can see right now, that there's more to life than what my eyes can see. Now remember, these guys are experts when it comes to the book of Moses. Moses is their authority. He is the guy that they listen to. And inside of what Moses has written, which let's not forget, everything that is in Scripture is from God. Right? Peter tells us in 2 Peter that there are men who were carried along by God by the Holy Spirit who were led to write down the words of Scripture as God gave it to them. So like everything that we read in Scripture, it's not just there by happenstance. It's there because God wants it to be there. So even in, in the book of, of Moses, that they, or these books of Moses that they understand, there's a context here in Deuteronomy 25 of what they're saying is legit. This is what, they, they, what they've understood. Moses wrote about this little scenario in Deuteronomy chapter, 12, Deuteronomy chapter 25. There's something called uh, a liberate marriage. And it's detailed there in chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And, and it's, if a woman was to lose her husband... Her husband's brother is supposed to then take her as a wife and take care of her. Now, the world then was so much different than the world that we live in right now, right? Women have so many more freedoms and um, are given equality as they should as co-image bearers of God. But that was not always lived out uh, in the context of the ancient world. And so if a husband was not in the picture, a wife did not thrive. A woman did not. If a dad was not in the picture, a woman did not thrive. They were dependent on the support of a dad or of a husband. And so the law was there to protect them, to make sure that they weren't just thrown out into the dust and left to die. So this liberate marriage was here to protect them. And so in this extreme case, the Sadducees, they go down this road seven times. If she marries her husband and the husband dies, if she marries her husband and the husband dies, if she marries the husband, and they go on and on and on. Seven times they go down this road. Now, first of all, like let's just assume like this scenario, how sad would this be for the woman? 
Seven times. I get married and my husband dies. I get married and my husband dies. I get, that would be, you'd be on Dateline right now if that were to happen, right? Like, what's going on? What's in the water? But how grief-stricken would her heart be? Like, this guy, he's gone and he's gone. And then on top of that, Scripture says she has no children. Children were a blessing. They were a gift. They were a blessing given by God. And she has no children. And then ultimately, these guys paint the scenario and then she dies. And here's the question in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife is she going to be? That's an interesting question come from the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection, isn't it? We don't believe that this is happening, but it, just in case it does, whose wife is she, she going to be? The absurdity of the question of tracking this down seven times over and then she eventually dying is these Sadducees trying to highlight the absurdity for them of the resurrection. They're saying this case scenario would never play out the resurrection is absurd. This is never going to play out. They're saying, what you're laying down, we're not picking up. There is no resurrection of the dead. They don't yet know that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. They have no concept of that. They don't, they don't know that's who he is. Okay, so here's the answer that Jesus gives them in verse 24. He said, okay, I'll play your little game. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And when you read the text, this is where my kids would be like, oh, that's a sick burn. Can you believe it? Can you, they, hey, they just said they're dumb and they don't know anything. The thing that they have prided themselves on knowing these five books, he said, you don't even know that. You have no idea. No one likes to hear that they're wrong, right? Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. How many friendships and relationships have been ended because somebody said, you know what? I don't agree with you. I, 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 don't, uh, I, I don't see it the same way that you see it. I think that you're wrong on this one. How many friendships have been ended? How many relationships have died? How many families have been broken up because of a simple issue like that? On thing, and then on top of thing, on that, things are as important as life and death. But Jesus is saying here, he says, you're wrong. And then he's going to say it again in verse 27. You're wrong. The Sadducees cared about one thing. They wanted to be right on all matters according to the, these books of Moses. And Jesus said, you don't even know those scriptures and you don't even know the power of God. If you knew the scriptures, you would know the power of God and you would know that he is capable of resurrection. But here's the trouble that every one of us face, not just these Sadducees, but you and me who are sitting in these seats right now. Here's the trouble that, that we face and, the, and the, the thing that we're prone to fall into. When we read the scriptures, we can overlay our opinion on what the scriptures say, instead of reading it and asking God to show us what it means. Because I have my thoughts, I have my opinions, I've got the things that I've been through, I've got traditions that I've been raised with, I've got things that I want the Bible to say, I've got things that I don't want the Bible to say, I've got things that I expect the Bible is going to say when I open it up, and you do too. We all do. We all come to with a, a certain lens. And the problem is that we can sometimes read those things into the scriptures with them not actually being in the scriptures. And so what happens, we have to be really diligent to come to the Bible and say, God, what do you say here? What do you say? And whatever you say, give me the wisdom to believe it. And then give me the courage to live it out. 
Don't just let me bring my own presuppositions to what's here. What they came to the Scripture with, they, they, when they came to the Scriptures, they just breezed over the portions that talked about resurrection. They didn't see it because they didn't want to see it. They didn't see it because they didn't expect it to actually be in there. So even though they don't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus knows that, he gives them an answer according to believing in the resurrection as if they did. Here's what he says in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay. <laughs> Let's dive in there. What Jesus is saying here is like, there's going to be a resurrection. There is. There's just no doubt about it. There will be a day when everybody dies. There will be a day when the dead rise. Everyone who has lived before us and everybody who's going to live after us. Barring Jesus come back, they're going to, they're going to die. But there's going to be a day when the, day, the dead are, are raised. And when the dead are raised, Jesus is saying everything's going to be different. The world is going to look different than it looks today. Our relationships are going to look different than they, you and I are going to look different than what we look today. There's going to be some type of resemblance, but it's going to be different. And some of y'all are saying, thank God I'm going to look different. Thank God. There is going to be some resemblance. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm praising God that we'll probably have hair. I'm just saying. But the world's going to be different. And what Jesus says here is that even marriage and singleness is going to come to an end. And I know that breaks your heart, right? If you're in a marriage where you just love your wife or you just love your husband or you're looking forward to, to uh, being married in heaven or something, it breaks your heart to think that you're not going to be matched together. Um, but Jesus says that our resurrection bodies um, are going to be like the angels, now, I want to make sure that we don't read more into this than what's actually here in the text. I think the uh, Mormons have kind of gotten off and gotten into trouble on, on this one because they read it to say that we will become angels. And then eventually that's going to lead into becoming gods. But that's not what the scripture says here. This is not what Jesus is saying at all. He is saying that we will become like the angels, which means that we aren't going to be sexually driven beings. This is not going to be what drives us from, from day to day. We're going to be immortal as the angels live in heaven are immortal. And our lives are going to be completely devoted to God, completely devoted to God. There's not going to be this divided devotion between spouse and God. All of our focus, all of our attention, all of our worship is going to go to God and to God alone as it has always been intended to be. I had a professor one day, um, or not one day, I had a professor uh, he really couldn't come to grips with this idea that he and his wife were not going to be married in heaven, that they weren't going to be married in eternity. He fully believed that he and his wife, however it worked out and however it shook out, that they were going to be, that they were going to be married. And every time he would say something like that, I'd be like, bro, that's not what the Scripture says. I know that might be your heart's desire, but that's not what it says here. Like the whole idea of marriage was to be a picture of a heavenly reality, Right? Marriage was intended to be this picture that represented this beautiful unity between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, where they worked in unity and, and perfection, and they worked in harmony together. Marriage was supposed to be a picture of that. 
And when Christ comes along, marriage then becomes this picture of, it was intended to be a picture of Christ's love for the church and how the church responds to Christ. That's what we read in Ephesians 5 and all throughout the New Testament, right? Like marriage was intended to be a picture. It's a beautiful gift of God, but it's always been intended to point people back to who God is, okay? And so when Christ comes along, as he is now, and when the resurrection comes along, and when eternity comes around and the resurrection happens, when we see our Savior face to face, the picture of marriage isn't going to be needed anymore because it's done its job. It's pointed people to Jesus. The bride and the groom are finally together. You understand that? That's eternity. That is heaven. That is revelation. That is us, the bride and the groom, finally being together. And so Jesus gives them this crash course on the purpose of heaven. It's not for marriage. It's a perfect reunion of God and his people together in heaven. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, to which they would have said, of course, we've read in the books of Moses. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He goes back to the books that they're familiar with. In Exodus chapter 3, and verse 5 and 6, God says this. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And there's this bush that's on fire, you know. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. Now, grammar is not usually any of our friends, right? None of us are like, man, take me back to school. We don't, we don't want to do that. But I want you to underline or circle what Jesus was saying here. That word, I am, that's important because it is in the present tense. That means it's happening right now. Not, it, not like I, I was the God of your father. It's not that I was the God of the people. It's not that I was God back then. This is present tense. I am God of your father. That means something here. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And this is the point. This is the goal. This is heaven. This is eternity. There is never a time that when our eyes close and we take our last breath that we are actually dead. We die here, but we're present with the Lord. There's just, there's just no sense in where we ever stop being. It just never, it doesn't happen that way. He was God then, he's God now, he will forever be God for all of those who have lived. And there's a huge difference in the way that the world understands what happens after we take our last breath and what Jesus tells us happens after we take our last breath. There's never a time where we're not gonna be alive. When we take our last breath, it's done here on earth, but it's not done. He's the God of the living. And so here's where I wanna talk real talk with you and we're gonna wrap it up. Because I believe what Jesus says here. He is the God of the living. That means that what we do matters. That means that what we believe matters. That means that what we give our lives to and our attention to and our time to, it matters. There's nothing in our life that's just trivial. Every single bit of it matters. And I love how God puts flesh on this for us in the book of Ezekiel. When there are things that just look like they're dead, he brings them back to life. Israel had forever been turning their back on God. God would say, turn to me, and they would just turn the other way and keep running harder and faster in the opposite direction. They were always turning their back on God. They were actually under God's punishment. 
And God takes Ezekiel and, and he takes him to a valley. And in that valley, he says, look down there. And the valley's full of dry bones. And Ezekiel looks down into the valley. And all of a sudden, that valley that's full of dead bones, it starts coming to life. And you want to talk about freaking you out, man. Like this valley of dry bones, it starts waking up. Bones start getting up. Flesh starts covering those. Muscles start covering those bones. And then they start moving. And that valley of death then becomes a valley of life. This was God showing his promise. I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to bring my people back. But it's also a picture of us holding on to this covenant. God has made a covenant with his people. Covenants only hold up as long as somebody is alive. Not as they're dead. When somebody dies, the covenant is gone. God's covenant was for the living. It's for the living, not for the dead. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Um, if you're comfortable, would you close your eyes um, for a minute? I want to remind you that we'll one day draw our last breath. When you do, what happens next? What is your reality in light of Scripture here? If you know Jesus, man, that is a beautiful reality. You're going to finally be with him. It's going to stink to be gone, maybe from family and friends, and people are going to miss you. But our beautiful reality is that we are going to be in heaven and our hope totally and ultimately fulfilled. But if you don't know Jesus, it's quite a terrifying reality because the way we understand Scripture, there is heaven and there is hell. It's not just one big party at the end high-fiving each other. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we let him bring us to life. He's the God of the living, the God of the living. And if you are dead spiritually, he wants to bring you back to life. He wants you in the family. He's the God of the living. Let him put flesh back on your bones. We don't need to fear death. You're in Christ. And it's the doorway to a new life, to all of our hope fulfilled. If you're dead, let him breathe life into you this morning. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thanks for our time together. Thanks that we get to open up your word and we get to learn from you and we get to learn from history that you have ordained for us to learn from. Father, thank you for Jesus, for he is the resurrection and the life and the life that will come, the resurrection that will come is because he rose from the dead. Father, he did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died a death that we deserve to die. And he wants to give us grace and he wants to give us life and he wants to put some breath back into our lungs. And so wherever we are this morning, God, I pray that you would breathe that life into us. For my brothers and sisters who are living with you, I pray that all of their life would be pointed towards you. For, for my friends who are in the room who haven't yet trusted you, God, I pray that right now would be the time where they cry out to you and say, Jesus, I want life. I want what you have given me. I want what you have offered me. I don't deserve it, but I receive it. Take my sin, put it on the cross. Jesus, I want you. I want you. This is my heart's cry this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.